you'll keep your Bibles open to Proverbs 31, if you have your Bible, and there, that's where you are. Um, we're going to try and tackle this entire last portion. This will be our last in the series in Proverbs, which I hope has been helpful for you. It has certainly been uh, a wonderful time of digging things in the Old Testament that uh, have been useful to me personally, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I hope some of you have enjoyed it. That's going to be too heavy for that, isn't it? Uh, enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, this uh, Proverbs 31 woman is one of those passages that gets preached on uh, on Mother's Day, uh, rightfully so, because it's time for us to put all you women straight. Um, but uh, we're, we're going to take a, a little deeper look at that today, and I hope you'll see that as we, we work through it. Um, in fact, the word that's used here for excellent is not a word that's easily translated and most often has a couple of other meanings to it that might not be the ones you would be familiar with in this, uh, in this passage. But in the first place, we want to just look at the passage as it sits on the surface and it's a very plain one. It's not hard to discern what's going on. With no debate of any kind that I know of, Solomon, in penning this passage, is rehearsing the oracle, which is just a word for the inspired message, that Lemuel's mother gave him. We, both, we met both Lemuel and his mother in the very first verse of this chapter, and beyond their names, we don't know anything else about them. But in this second part of her oracle, verses 10 through 31, she helps her son realize what kind of woman he needs to look for in a wife, especially considering the fact that he's going to be taking the throne one day. She's helping train up her son as, uh, as what it is to be a king. And so she notes first that she is excellent. That word excellent is the same word that's used for David after he had killed Goliath and it's translated that he was valiant. That's the real root of the word. This is a strong person. In other places, it's actually translated strong. But it's almost the, the majority of the times this word is used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word under it, it's used in terms of war or, or battle or soldiers acting valiantly, acting with great strength. So this is not about, and I'm glad we don't have anybody translating for the hearing impaired this morning, it's not about being obsequious. That would be a tough one for her. And, and we'll unpack that as we move along through this. She, this woman that is portrayed here is self-possessed, not wishy-washy. She's not servile. She doesn't look at her husband and say, oh, whatever you say, master. That is not the picture that's being painted here. And if you think it is, you haven't really read the chapter very well. You're going to have to, especially if you're a man and you think that, you need to rethink how you read this chapter. The woman, this excellent, strong woman that's given to us in this passage is no brainless, unopinionated ornament. She's a match for him. And so... His, his mother says, first of all, she's excellent. She is strong. She is valiant. She is not a silent, um, let's see, are Ben and Jill here? I don't want to say, all right, correct what I said. 
Fill, fill this in for your daughter. She's not a shrinking violet. Their daughter's name is Violet, and I didn't want to throw that all off, because, you know, when you're that little, those things can have a big impression. The second word that she uses in this passage is that she's rare. And that's part of what makes her so valuable. She's rare because, number one, there's not many like her, but number two, there's not as many, not very many who are as profitable as she is to her husband. She's a real catch. So Lemuel's mother is saying, don't look for average or just pretty. Look for someone who can bring something to the table. Because she has a brain and she can interact with you and she can challenge you on your level. I remember going back 14 years ago, nearly 14 years ago, as I was starting to look for a wife and I... It's very sketchy to find a wife on the internet, let me tell you, but that's what happened. And uh, it's even sketchier that she was on the internet. But we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that later. But one of the things that I included in my profile, which was rather cryptic, because I was worried that somebody from the church might stumble on that same website, and if they saw me there, they'd go, ew, and the ew factor just... So I, I didn't post my picture. And I, but one of the things that I included in there was that I wanted a woman who could argue with me and win sometimes. Now, the, the real word in there was sometimes, so I got more than I bargained for, but, <laughs> but I didn't want some wide-eyed, yes-master follower. That's not a wife. That's a sycophant. Another tough word for the translator, so I won't do that one. And you, you can hire a housekeeper, she says to Lemuel, you can hire a cook. You can even hire a governess to watch over and, and raise your children. You can't hire a true partner who is an excellent wife. Because in order to be an excellent wife, you have to marry her. She's got to be both excellent and you have to marry her. So in the verses following... Lemuel's mother sums up this excellent wife in six traits. These six that she lines out for him. The first one is that she must be a woman of good will toward him. That she's got, um, as it says in verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She has his best interest at heart. It's, it's goodwill toward him, even when she has to confront him. Even when she may have to contradict him. He can trust that she has his best interest at heart. That's given to you in verses 11 and 12, and then it picks up again in verse 23. And I'll show you why some of these concepts repeat later. Secondly, in verses 13 through 16, well... Forgot I included those. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Secondly, she is a person of industry. She's not lazy. She's about business. As a matter of fact, he picks this up in 13 through 16 and then hits it again in verse 24. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. I've yet to have my wife seek wool and flax. We've got to discuss that unless they're pre-finished. Um, she's like the ships of a merchant. She, she brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. And she considers a field and buys it. She, she's out there. She's strong. 
She's really invested. And she buys it, and with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. That's pretty impressive. This, this is not just a homebody. She's a working woman in that sense. Now, in that day, in an agrarian culture, she would be more invested in that, but certainly that can translate over to today. And then third, in 17 through 19, he mentions her thoughtfulness, but not thoughtfulness in the sense of um, she's careful about how she um, uh, interacts with people. That'll certainly come in into that. But it means that she gives thought to the world and to what she does and what her role is. And, and she doesn't just get a narrow point of view, but she educates herself and thinks through it. There's an interesting Hebraism that pops up in this chapter where it says she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She thinks about being a strong person in this society. And she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She she doesn't turn a blind eye to reality. She understands her own worth and and what she can do. And her lamp does not go out at night. And here's an interesting poetic phrase, that she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. The idea is that she actually doubles the wool over and does both parts of the work because she really thinks about what needs to be done. She invests herself in it in a very... uh, careful and deep way and thinks about the world because look at the interaction here being dressed with strength and arms strong and and perceiving that her merchandise is valuable profitable out there in in the world and and how she's industrious at night and thoughtful in all this she thinks about this stuff fourthly he mentions she mentions that she's charitable verse 20 that also gets picked up later on through charitable and Look at the verse. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She perceives that she has something to offer others and has pity on them. She isn't all just wrapped up in herself and her, and her own family. There's, there's more going on there. And then she's fearless. That's not a word we often associate with femininity, is it? But the Proverbs 31 woman is Fearless in verses 21 and 25 that gets brought up, but here's 21. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She, she's done the work, and she's not afraid of what's going to happen in the world. She's prepared. She, as I said, that'll get picked up again in verse 25. We'll look at that later. And then lastly, she is one with wizened kindness. We'll unpack that later as we walk through it. Verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That was a second feature that I had in my prospective bride. I wanted somebody who could argue with me and win sometimes. And I wanted somebody who was kind. Kindness escapes our world today. Just read anything online and then follow the comments section. Kindness is not where our society lives anymore, even in the church. Well, so far, so good. These things are clearly evident. You can see them. They're patently on the surface. And this is wise counsel, especially to all you young men out there who are of marriageable age or approaching that, looking at that, and to you uh, young marriageable women. Take note. And I really want to warn you here, you young gals, there aren't a lot of guys looking for this much quality in a woman. 
So you're going to have to be picky. And sadly, sometimes, guys, you're not picky enough. You're not looking for a woman of quality. And you need to be. That's an important reality of what goes on here. It's a rare man that really does that. But neither of you ought to just settle. Now, that's all good advice. It's sound. It's ethical. It's biblical. It's, it'll carry in every generation. But as, we, as we've seen throughout this study, if we stop there, if we just come away with good advice, but not much food for our souls, not much by way of of what this might mean to us in terms of Christ and his kingdom and such, we haven't really gotten to the heart of what we want to get to in this passage, of why it was written, why the Holy Spirit would inspire it in the first place. So for those aspects, we need to dig a bit deeper. But before we get there, I want to make one observation about the practical application of this portion in its first setting. Ladies, if you want to, you can, you can close your ears. This is a word of warning. One of the most problematic ways that Christians can approach the Scriptures as a whole, not just a passage like this, is to be wrapped up in how that specific portion applies to someone else and not to myself. So I read the passage, I exegete the passage, and I think, you know who needs to hear that? I do. Nowhere is that more true than in a passage like this one, or in Ephesians 5, or Colossians 3, or Titus 2, and 1 Peter 3, where husbands and wives are addressed together. When you go into such portions, it is never, hear, hear that word, never. If you didn't get it, let me spell it for you. N-E-V-E-R, never, means never, not occasionally. You never, it is never the province of the husband to wave those passages under the nose of their wives, nor of the wives to wave those passages under the nose of their husbands. Husbands are to read their passages and portions and submit to them before God. And wives are to read their portions and submit themselves before God in them. But we don't use them as swords to pierce the other person. That is always an abuse of the word and never the use of the word. So, each has to answer for God for their own responsibilities. Untold damage has been done to many a good woman who has a boorish, selfish, self-righteous, controlling jerk of a husband who will turn to a passage like this and ask why their wife doesn't measure up. That's abuse. I told Sky jokingly before we left this morning, I was planning to pass cards out to all the men in the congregation and they were to grade their wives on a scale of 1 to 10 after we worked through this passage. That's abuse. That's not how you use the Word of God. You, in your private study, you go to the Word of God and you say, Holy Spirit, pierce my heart. Expose me. Deal with me so that I'm conformed to the image of Christ. So if you use this passage as a weapon, you'll do nothing but abuse it. And sadly, due to our sinful tendencies, such a warning has to be issued. I wish it didn't have to be. But that said, we've moved over the real tough part. Uh, let me point out a few other key things we need to understand about the passage as a whole. And the first is that you need to know that the portrait that's given to us here in this chapter is an ideal. It's an ideal, and it's meant to be an ideal. 
Some commentators that I looked at even said that this is supposed to function like a a heroic poem. It's supposed to give you an, an outsized or exaggerated portrait that's to stir the emotions. So that you look at something really oversized and say, wow, like a little kid looking at a superhero. Ladies, you're supposed to look at this and say, what an ideal. That's astounding. It's, it's the same concept as Michelangelo's famous statue of the David. In that sculpture, David is uncharacteristically oversized. In fact, he is, and there's a nice comparison for you, that statue, he's 16 feet, 11 and a half inches tall. No real human being is that tall. That's what Michelangelo was after. This is an ideal. This is a a picture that's oversized. So you, you see the proportion and you say, man, that's awesome. And the other thing that Michelangelo did when he sculpted the David was he made his head oversized. If you look at the, the normal size of a human head compared to a human body, this, the, the, the head is greatly enlarged here and so are his hands. Because the idea is that, and and as those are disproportionately large, the idea is it's meant to accent his, his heroism and his mind and his ability. Well, that's the way this passage of Scripture functions. Now, why would I say that? Am I just making that up uh, when I come to this picture painted of the excellent wife? I want to reiterate, this isn't meant to be a daunting yoke around the neck. It's meant to be an inspiring ideal. And to say, wow, look at that. To look up and to be lifted. High ideals are always good to have in mind and to aspire to if we remember that perfection, while aimed at, will not be achieved in this life. No human being will ever be able to look like David and be 16, almost 17 feet tall with those huge hands and huge head and the sling over his left shoulder preparing to go out and slay Goliath. It's an ideal. It's a picture. Now that said, again... I don't think we've gotten to the best application for us in our circumstances as the church in the New Covenant era. For this, we need to still dig a little deeper and go beyond, and I would argue that above everything else, this passage, verses 10 through 31, is meant to be a stunning portrait of Christ's bride, the church. That's what's being teased out for the New Covenant believer. This is a picture of the church, of what we are supposed to be to Christ in this world. Now, that's a high ideal. That's a real call. Now, I'm not alone in thinking this way. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, a preacher can give his own little slant on things. And uh, I learned as a tool years ago, if I'm the only one who views a passage a particular way, I'm probably wrong. If I can't go throughout church history and find others who have exegeted this in a similar way, it's a good way to just double check yourself. And so I I started hunting. Am I on the wrong path here? And no, uh, I went back and I found that the Venerable Bede in the 7th century, this was his approach. Then I found out that it was John Gill's approach, the famous Baptist theologian of the 17th century. Wordsworth said this is how the passage is to be exegeted. Uh, Ambrosius, who was a mentor to Augustine, and Augustine 
both took this approach to this passage. Harry Ironside from Moody Memorial preached it this way. Robert Hawker, the famous Puritan in his Poor Man's Commentary. And just recently, I stumbled on Peter Lilback, who's the president of Westminster Seminary, preaching this very passage, this very way, in Sinclair Ferguson's church in in South Carolina. So I feel on a fairly solid ground. You may disagree with me, but at least I'm with a couple of good people in the process. But I, I, I draw that from several places, not the least of which is in Ephesians chapter 5. Because we remember what the whole purpose of marriage is for anyway. Much needed in our generation. As Paul relates to the church there at Ephesus, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But he says that isn't isn't the whole of it. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the model that we're all supposed to be drinking in as we look at this. The bride of Christ is just one of the various euphemisms for the church used throughout the Bible. And it's by no means the least, especially when you come to the close of the scripture. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, how it focuses on the image of the church as Christ's bride and summing up the wonder of our relationship to him in that picture. That's what the spirit is inspiring here for us above and beyond great stuff in the natural. And these are the qualities he spells out as those he's looking for in his bride, the church. Now, there's a couple other reasons why I take this as being more poetic and more ideal than just good advice. These 22 verses, in fact, are probably the most highly stylized chapter in the entire Bible. I want to give you two examples of that before we move on. It is two things. It is both an acrostic and a chiasmus. Now, we've talked about chiasm before, but we'll mention, you know what an acrostic is. Each successive verse, there's 22 verses here, 10 through 31, each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it prevents, presents an ideal. It's a poetic construct. So you can see that up here. Uh, here's the Hebrew alphabet going down. The tw- and each verse begins with that letter as you work down through the passage. So it's meant to strike in the mind of the original reader, hey, this is unusual. This is highly unusual. So it presents this ideal to which no individual woman can actually attain. And it seems that there's something more extraordinary being teased out here. As we all know, marriage is intended to mirror Christ and the church. And all men are to live and to love their wives, illustrating Christ's love for the church, even as all women are to live and love and and love their husbands as an illustration of how the church responds to the love of Christ. And so this highly idealized picture of the woman, Lemuel ought to pursue, finds its ideal in the church and in Christ himself. Secondly, though, not only is it an acrostic, here is a, a, an unparalleled portion of poetry, not only in Hebrew, in Hebrew literature, but in all of ancient literature. And that is that it is also a chiasm. And a chiasm is a form of Hebrew poetry which works this way, parallel statements that move in toward a center and then move back out. And so as you start in verse 10 with the high value of a good wife, so you end in verses 30 through 31 on the high value of a good wife. And in B, 
verses 11 and 12, the husband is benefited by the wife. And in 28 and 29, the husband and the children praise the wife. And so these parallel phrases get used all the way through. It works its way down to a center and then works its way back out. It's called a chiasmus for those of you that haven't been with us. Because when you look at it, it's one half of an X, which is the letter chi in Greek. So that's where they got that funny name for it, a chiasm. But that's how the passage works. So here's this real intricate, unusual poetry of taking an acrostic and moving it into a chiasm. And the author is saying, tell you what, this is highly unusual. This is not just normal stuff. There's something really big going on here. And so he gives us that. So you start with those things and and you move through them. Well, that takes us back then to these, to these defining traits as we have them. So I already mentioned these are summed up in six qualities. And so I want to think through them with you just briefly as they might apply to the church, the bride of Christ. And the first then is this idea of goodwill. In verses 11 through 12 and also in verses 23, that the wife is trustworthy in goodwill toward her husband. Now, here's the question. How is the church, and are we, trustworthy in goodwill toward the reputation of the Christ who saved us? Can we as the church say that we have Christ's good name as a priority? Do you remember when Jesus was teaching the Lord's Prayer? The highest priority in that entire prayer that he gives, where he starts... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's no greater benefit for the universe than for the Father to be revered properly by the whole of His creation. Christ says, if you're going to pray, pray for that. It's the beat of His own heart. And we, as His bride, have to think... Is that us? If the hollowing of his father's name was so central to his own thought, to his own heart, then, then don't we pick up that same theme when we look in a passage like 1 Peter 2? I hope to be starting 1 Peter next week. How it's central to Christ's call to the church, to the mission of the church that we are to Make known or proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what the church is for. It's astounding. So does does Christ, having called us to co-labor with Him in His church, have confidence in us to do His cause and His name good? Do we think about it as the church? That that's part of why we're here. Can He trust us to use the gifts that He's given us to be used to seek the glory of His name in making His person and His work known to a fallen world? That's the first call of the church. This is us, bride. And yes, He's committed things into our hands. That trustworthiness shows itself in a portion like 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, we are to guard the good deposit entrusted to you he's he's entrusted something into our care and we're to guard that good deposit or in jude 3 beloved 
Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do we, do we say that's what we have to guard in our generation? This once for all delivered faith so that we're champions of it and protecting it and, and passing it on to the next generation. Or in 2 Timothy 2, Timothy says to, or Paul says to Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He's given us the repository of his word and his faith, and we're to guard that and protect it and make sure it's transferred to the next generation so that they carry it on until Christ returns. Man, that's the the goal, the mission of the church. If you were with us Wednesday night for Bible study, going through the parables, Al Sable was teaching on the parable of the talents in Matthew, where Jesus graphically describes his kingdom as as one where he commits his gifts and graces into our hands and then returns to see if we've made good on them, if we've honored him in investing them and seeing them used in his best interest. Now, this is something for us to think through as a congregation. How do we do that? How do we use those resources for the glory of His name? And so in these verses, the heart of her husband can trust in her. And he will have no lack of gain because she does him good and not harm. And her husband has a good reputation because of her. This is, again, part and parcel of what it means for us to be the church. And as we were hearing in Sunday school this morning, why we need to not be afraid to speak publicly about the truth and the glory of Christ in a generation that is going to reject that and probably treat it as hate speech. We can't be afraid. We'll come back to that. And then in verses 13 through 16 again, He brings up that second concept of being industrious. And so we can ask ourselves as a congregation, as the church, as part of the church in our generation, is the church busy in building up the household of faith? How we've got this charge to preach the gospel. And to do that not only within our local context, but in missions. We've got Dan Cuevas here this morning from California. He's going to be ministering all week out at the uh, Mormon pageant. Proclaiming the gospel to those who have been persuaded by a false gospel. And that this is the mission of the church. Mark sixteen fifteen. you know, when Jesus says... Uh, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. And and the church in training up the next generation. I wonder, you know, as I draw closer and closer to to retirement age uh, in 20 years or so. um, Yeah, my wife's really laughing. um, Do we see that host of young men and women being raised up who are passionate? about the truth of God and His church and the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints who we can train up, who will say, yes, we'll carry that in our generation. Should Christ tarry, we'll do that and we'll train the generation after us. Or are we just living our individual Christian lives? Because as the church, we've got to do more than that. We've got to be industrious with what God has entrusted into our hands. Third again in 17 through 19 is that thought of 
being thoughtful about life. I already mentioned the way that the Hebrew poetry works, this doubling of yarns, uh, shows that the person is engaged with with what's really going on out there in the world, not just making a nice little thing for home, but thinking about what what it's going to have to withstand and, and paying attention to every detail. And for us, that's part and parcel of engaging with cultural issues, thinking deeply about current issues from a biblical worldview, as we heard this morning in Sunday school. Not knee-jerk reactions from the political side, but real spiritual responses to a generation that seems lost to an anti-God worldview. Peter talks, or yeah, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, and it's interesting how he's going to repeat this word. Watch these three portions of scripture. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Catch that? Sober-minded. Thinking clearly, rationally, biblically. Having clear thoughts and you need that for action. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't set your hope fully on cultural change. Work for it. Impact it. But set your hope on Christ. That's sober-mindedness. That's being clear with where we are in our generation. Or in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's the opposite of running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Christians aren't to be reactionary, but clear thinking and say, how do we approach this? What do we do with it? And be self-controlled and sober-minded for what? For the sake of your prayers. You can't pray intelligently unless you're thinking clearly. How do we do that and bring these things into really understanding them from God's perspective? Or again, 1 Peter, he likes this word. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Someone who he can take off task by not being sober-minded. Who can move us from our first call to guard and to improve those things that Christ has put in our hands and to be removed into other things. It's a remarkably practical passage for the church, isn't it? Or how about the fourth trait, charitableness? Does the church maintain compassionate hearts toward the suffering that sin has brought into this world? Or do we look at the suffering that sin has brought into this world and say to those people, well, you deserve it. That's what sinners get. Really? We were all sinners. And you know what we got? Grace. Mercy. The whole issue of salvation is that none of us have gotten what we deserve. We've gotten what He has freely given through the substitutionary death of His Son at Calvary. Are we that way? Matthew 10, 8. This is when Jesus is sending out the the disciples. He says, look, I'm going to give you a special commission. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. But note the, the controlling portion. You've received without paying. Give without paying. 
Have pity on the world. Look at the broken lives of your neighbors, of those in political office, and weep for their lostness and pray for their salvation rather than send anthrax-laced letters. To be broken over a lost world rather than angry at it. Be angry at sin. But reach out to those lost people bound and blind by the enemy and plead for their souls. Weep for Barack Obama. He's bound and blind and needs mercy and grace. And if all we do is shout in His face, we've abdicated our role as Christ's bride. Do we act in both the concrete and the spiritual so that this is lived out in a way that that proclaims the goodness and the wonder of a Christ who says to a lost world, come unto me all you who are weak and heavy laden. Because by the blood of His cross, there is forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God the Father. And then, really, for our day, fearless. Is the church fearless in our generation, or have we retreated? I don't know about you, but I feel at times very afraid of political correctness in myself. Afraid to speak boldly for the truth of Christ in certain contexts. It can creep up on us imperceptibly. And, and as the church, we can't afford to go there. About three years ago, as I was sharing certain preaching notes with Sky, she said, well, I'll come visit you in prison. And at first we joked about it, and then the more we've thought about it, the more we've said... You know, that's a distinct possibility. Especially with the laws changing just the way they have. Are we going to be too afraid to preach the gospel and preach God's word? Are we going to back down in the face of political correctness? Are we going to say we can't call sin, sin anymore? Or as we just saw this week, that lawsuit suing Zondervan Publishing for $70 million because the Bible is homophobic. Or as I saw just this week, a church who went to a gay bakery and asked them to bake a cake for a church event, and the bakery is suing them for harassment because they were offended by it. See, our world's upside down, and we need to be fearless. Not stupid, not arrogant, not belligerent, but fearless. We must be. Do we really trust Him in our dark hours or do we cave to the culture? As Paul said in Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We know who we serve irrespective of what's around us. This is a call to an ideal, but it is where we we as the church are called to. This is so timely in light of the recent SCOTUS ruling. Will we preach? Will we teach? Will we practice God's morality? Or will we cave to the world's? 
Will they scare us into either capitulation or silence? Or have we prepared ourselves by looking to Christ and strengthening ourselves in His promises? It's a big call. Bride, church, that's what we're called to. And then lastly, wizened kindness. Wizened you don't hear very often anymore, do you? That's my problem with reading the, the, the Puritans. They used words like wizened regularly. Here's, here's what's really necessary for us. Truth without compassion soon becomes mean. And compassion without truth soon becomes empty sentimentality. We can't afford to go in either direction. We have to have truth and compassion. A wonderful passage in Psalm 85 talks about Christ specifically. And in His death and in His atoning sacrifice, we're told that steadfast love and faithfulness meet. That righteousness and peace kiss each other. How is it that God can deal with us righteously and yet be at peace with us? Only through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And in that place where He atones for our sin, His righteousness can meet with peace toward us. And they kiss. That's the cross. That's the same dynamic of balance that we're called to here in this last portion. Is the church, are we at ECF filled with the wisdom of how God sees the world? And then are we representatives and dispensers of His great kindness in the, in the gospel? I know that in our day and age, I heard this just a little while ago from a, a very public preacher who is now not with us, and so I refrain from using his name and sullying his memory, but he said he never preaches to his congregation as though they're sinners. Why? Because he didn't want to make them feel bad. I've got news for you. Some people here, you're still lost in your sin. You've not come to Christ yet. You're still outside grace. You stand still under the judgment of God for your sin. It's just truth. Same truth that you'd hear from your doctor if you went to him and he said, you've got four months to live. Is he offending you when he says that? Or is he saying, let's do what we can do. And when we tell some of you here today that you're still lost and without Christ, maybe you've thought you were a Christian, maybe you've pretended to be a Christian, maybe you've, you've grown up in a Christian culture, but you've never bowed the knee to Christ. You've never said, I'm going to stop being my own God, the last person I answer to. I'm going to turn to Christ who made me and give Him my entire life and recognize that I need to be cleansed from my sin and shame and that the blood of Christ exclusively does that. And as I trust Him to have died in my place, I can be reconciled to God the Father and be born again. Maybe that's you today. You need to be there. And I don't tell you the bad news of your lost condition because I hate you. I tell you because I love you and I know there is salvation for you. There is life for you in Jesus Christ today. There's forgiveness and cleansing and newness and reconciliation. 
Do we have care and concern for people's sufferings, but, but do so at the expense of failing to bring the truth, truth of God's word to them and the gospel to their hearts and their minds for their eternal good? We can never afford to err on one side or the other. We're called to both in this world. Well, let me bring you to some conclusions. These are these six defining traits. They're given to us in the closing portions. He mentions it in these last few verses of the chapter. What, what, what happens? What's the promise to this incredible woman? Well, he says in verse 28, Her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. Christ commends and praises His church and those saved under her ministry rise up and say, thank you for preaching the gospel to me. There's a wonderful promise there that His word will not return to Him void, but He will bless in the process. And Christ will bless His church. When we get into 1 Peter, there is an astounding passage in there about how He will honor and glorify His children on the final day. It's mind-boggling. But he will, he will bless her. He will praise her. And then we're also told in 29 that many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. This is the image of true excellence. It's a preventative against lopsidedness. True excellence wrapped up in how these things fit together. And then in verse 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I want to be careful here in what I say, because I know it would be easily misunderstood or, or pressed to a, a poor conclusion, distortion. The church's job is not to look attractive to the world on the world's basis. It is to look attractive to the world as salvation from its sinful lostness. So we can't begin to look other than what we are, which is Christ's bride, simply because it will please people outside. We have to look like His bride. If Sky started dressing for some other husband other than me, we'd have a chat. If the church starts dressing for anyone other than Christ, He has a chat. Read the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation. No. We, we need to have a, a beauty that's in holiness of character over and above worrying about how a, attractive to the outside world it might appear, though externally pleasing to the world's eye. That doesn't mean we make ourselves offensive needlessly. Not by any stretch. We bend... Everywhere we can without compromising the word. But at the same time, we remember who it is we're married to. And who it is we owe our ultimate allegiance to. In his plan and purpose. And then lastly, in verse 31, he has this laudatory verse. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. She will be rewarded. Christ rewards his church. He has great reward stored up for us. And just as Al was mentioning Wednesday night, 
the true believer, when we really get this stuff in our hearts and minds, we would rather hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant, than a kind word from anybody else on the planet. And he does, he rewards. More than approval from society or culture or even other religious bodies, we want to please him above all. So what's the takeaway in all this? It's been the tendency of the church in every generation of serious Christians to reinvent the church in their age and context. It just happens. What should the church look like? What is its mission? Um, How should we think about styles of worship? But in the end, those aren't the thoughts of Christ regarding how his church ought to look and appear in society. This is. This picture that you've just seen. She's to be trustworthy in goodwill toward his name and his cause. The trustworthy guardian of his reputation and his truths of his household. And to be industrious, to be about the business that is dearest to his heart and the maintenance of his household. It's to be thoughtful about life and engaged. To be engaged with the deep things of life and not one with our head buried in the sand and unaware of the world in which we live. And to be charitable, to be generous with the mercy of grace in Christ in proportion to how we've been the beneficiary of mercy and grace in in Christ. And fearless. She's to be fearless in, in facing the days ahead, knowing that the gifts and the resources of Christ have been given to us and are more than sufficient to see us through until the day when he returns and sets all right, and to be wise and kind, to be both wise in the ways of righteousness and winsome in proclaiming and living that righteousness out in the world. One last thought. As we become this kind of bride to him, as we contemplate how he is this kind of husband to us, for you see, that's, that's the mirror that works here. We were made in the image of Christ. The bride is to be reflecting back to him those traits that are endemic in him. Who is more full of goodwill toward his own than Christ? Who is more unceasing in, in extreme labor for us to the degree that he would go to the cross? Who is more full of truth about all of life that affects us than the one who is the very word of God and speaks to us, who's so full of grace to overflowing, who was absolutely fearless in the face of all opposition so that he would go to the cross for our salvation. This one in whom are all the sum of wisdom and infinite kindness in God incarnate. So, as, as we say, as Christ wants this kind of wife in us, he is that kind of husband toward us. And so here's my final word of application to you husbands. You want a Proverbs 31 wife? Be a Proverbs 31 husband. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for its incredible dealing with us on the deepest levels. It's just astounding to me how you leave passages like this for us and that they are so necessary and reasonable and uh, impactful and precise for the day in which we live. 
Uh, we stand amazed and we're grateful for it. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to preach it and teach it and spend this time together. And as we leave this place, Father, we do lift up our prayers for all those still caught in sin. Who don't yet know the forgiveness that's in Christ. Who've never been reconciled to you, never born again and made new. And we pray for that today in their hearts and minds. Show them the mercy you've shown us. Be as gracious to them this moment as you have been to us. Freely give to them the way you've given to us, Lord. We want to have them share in the joy and freedom and cleansing and wonder of what it means to be your child in Christ. And Father, for my brothers and sisters, I pray that as we look at this ideal of the church today, we won't be daunted by it, but inspired by it, energized by it, excited by it, directed by it, clarified and and bind together that we might serve you and love you in such a way. And we ask those things in Christ's name today. Amen. We're going to sing just the regular doxology, just the one in closing. So, pray. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heaven.